All right, we're, we're going to talk software methodologies, which is a topic that no one has any opinions about. So I'm sure it'll be a very <laughs> dead conversation. Uh, I should say, I should preface this by just saying what we've said before, but uh, definitely like raise your hand and hop in if you have any opinions on anything. So Adam, had you read this piece? No, I hadn't seen it before. Um, I assume you saw it on Hacker News like a few days ago or something. Yeah, I saw it just, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I think I actually saw someone make a reference to it on Twitter and then went back to the Hacker News discussion from a couple days ago. I've been offline for the last week, so. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh, <laughs> it has, it conjures up some, some feelings for sure. So, all right, well, yeah. well, you and I have both been in software, Dan as well, uh, in software for the, the, the 20 years since the Agile Manifesto. So uh, what, is, what is your retrospective on Agile? Well, you know, it's so, uh, you know, I, I, I feel like I've educated myself a little bit more um, in reading this document, some supporting material. But I mean, I, I went through the same thing that I'm sure everyone else has, which is like the discovery of a bunch of cargo cult type uh, rituals and um, poorly understood methodologies that didn't add up to much in sort of toxic environments and lots of like really toxic behavior kind of riding under the flag of agile. Um, fortunately, I've never really been subjected to it. Yeah. In I was going to say, I, way. yeah. Okay. So you've never actually suffered with, with, with agile. I, I've well, do you say agile uh, or agile, by the way, I noticed you said agile. Do you say agile? You know what? I think I heard it as agile a lot. I think lot. you say agile. Uh, I say agile. Huh. All right. Well, it, it would, I, it, I think there's it. even a reference in the Agile Manifesto to the fact that Martin Fowler is dismayed that everyone's pronouncing it incorrectly. But maybe you're actually <laughs> pronouncing it correctly according to Martin Fowler. <laughs> well, I wouldn't make that claim. <laughs> so you, have you ever had to endure agile in any way, shape, or form, Adam? Well... Sort of. So uh, in a couple of ways. So one through the lens of our customers um, back at Delphix, you know, we tried to shoehorn our way into the agile conversation um, and, and need to paint ourselves in that, in, in those kind of stripes. Um, so exposed to it in that way. But hold then, on. What, what, what do you mean? Hold on, I, I'm confused. Well, so you... Yeah, I guess, I guess like, you know, uh, maybe, um, I don't know how familiar you are with this, but like when, when there's a band passing through, you jump in and part, be part of that band, you know? And so through one of the, you know, when you're at a startup and you're trying to figure out what's working and what's not and how you can be part of or counter to a bunch of prevailing wins. So you, you hop on some bandwagons. So for a while we decided we're, you know, part of the agile story and had a bunch of pitch decks, that described how how it was part of it. So, so this um, is where you are are actually offering Delphix up as those who are embracing Agile as a tool for Agile development. Exactly, and and to be clear, you were I, a development. Delphix turned into a developer tools shop well, for some brief period of time. No, no. So I mean, so I, I realize now this feels like a, a like some sort of testimonial. I'm, I'm but, sorry, um, or like a therapist. No, no. no. Um, it was, uh, you know, what we heard from a bunch of customers was that they wanted to turn around environments more quickly. And this was one of the, you know, I mean, this was sort of part of the agile process slash agile snake oil. You know, the, you know, the consultants would come in and say, well, you know, you can't make forward progress because you're not agiling enough. And in particular, you weren't creating environments, you weren't allowing 
folks to test things earlier in the development process. So trying to capture you know, some of the desire in those organizations, some of it being well, like well-meeting and well-founded and some of it being based on snake oil. That actually sounds just, like somewhat legit. You're not genuflecting in the right direction, Adam. Yeah. You just need to genuflect with your hands at a 45-degree angle. Yours at a 43-degree angle. No, 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 no. I, I'm, I, I, we, we had lots of faith healing uh, exercises, yes. But it sounds like, I mean, that's actually, it sounds like you could make the argument that what you were doing was more promoting agility rather than agile, which I think. That, so that, that, that's, that's fair and that's true. But it, you know, um, in order to get into that conversation, I think we needed to like, you know, do our own military par- parades uh, that, that looked agile and, and stuff like that. So, th- so that was one way in which I was exposed. The other was, and, I, and I'd be surprised if you hadn't encountered this too. You know, folks we'd hire would say, or you know, whether it was in the engineering team, and this is like at, at all the companies I've been to, um, you know, whether it was in engineering teams or in adjacent organizations saying, you know, why aren't you guys agile enough? Why aren't you doing agile? Everyone does agile. Don't you know anything? So, but have you ever had scrums and sprints and pigs and chickens and epics and stories? I have. So, again, when I was at the CTO at Delphix, we had teams that were doing that. I, I did not participate in it necessarily. Like I, God, you I, sound like you my know, teenager. Like, listen, you're not in trouble. Okay, I just want to. I want to keep right. you safe. That's what I'm. I, I didn't. I, I'm saying I didn't inhale. Okay, um, but uh, at least not too deeply. But but I guess to, to what what I think is is something that often gets missed in in the agile discussions. Like those teams thought that that was what they wanted to do. So, you know, knock themselves out, like go for it. And if it was helping them, whether, whether it was because it, you know, it was some sort of, uh, you know, like phantom cure, fine. But if, if they wanted to do it that way, then that was fine. And often they kind of stabilized into something uh, a little less doctrinarian. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that the, because the manifesto itself, I think is fine ish. I mean, it's like, I don't know. I think it's. I'm waiting for Dan to unmute himself up here. I think that there are some things that are fine about it, um, certainly. And I think the the problem with agile is when it became so prescriptive that it lost a lot of its agility. Oh, let me look. Here's here's the thing with the agile manifesto. This is a programmer response to something which is fundamentally not a programming problem. And it is, it is frankly, and I, I, Adam hit this on the, on the head, man. This is a bunch of huckster snake oil salesmen, you know, basically peddling this like, hey, look, if you contort yourself into this weird shape five times a day, like the sky is going to turn orange and, and like, you know, unicorns are going to rain down and everything's going to be fucking magical. And, you know, the reality is that that like that, that's just never true, you know? And in some cases, I and, and, and it was like, who are these people writing the manifesto? You know, it's it's they're mostly consultants. It, There's a couple yes. of like, yeah, that is. The, I mean, it's a very fundamental problem. The, I mean, they, right, they, they they tout themselves in 2001 as being practitioners, which they may have been, but it is telling that in the intervening 20 years, the number of books that has come out of this group of folks does kind of indicate a disposition, and certainly the majority what? of them. And before all of them are not writing code. Well, and, so and before well, they, That's yeah, true. Uh, yeah. I mean, the problem is that they don't. They write enough 
code to be able to plausibly claim it. But yes, I mean, this is a, a group of hucksters coming together at a huckster convention, coming up with a huckster manifesto. I mean, to really, as long as, as, long as we're all piling on here. It, 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 I, I do feel that like there's something about software where we are, I, I feel there's so much ambiguity in software. There's so much that is unstructured in the way we develop software that we are constantly seeking people to tell us how to do it. And the answer is it's complicated and it's, and there's not one way of developing software and there are different, different constraints at different times and different things are effective for different kinds of software. And that's like, it's a very complicated answer that no one actually wants to hear I think people are desperate for this kind of like, Simplicity. I mean, it is the same reason that like religion arises, right? Where you're just like, hey, can you just like, I, I, I want some, you know, in this, the, you know, the, this terrible, lonely world and this pale blue dot in the cosmos, I need some simplicity, I need some answers. So please provide me some answers on software development. I, I saw a great Steve Yegi blog post along these lines, which, uh, which made that direct connection with Scientology, uh, saying, you know, cr- creating your own religion is a much better gig. So, yeah. Um, do, do you guys know who Ed Jordan is? Do you remember him? I see that a bunch of there, there's some some no. of, of my so Ed Jordan was a uh, oh yeah 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 the Death March guy right yes and the in particular he wrote a book called The Decline and Fall of the American Programmer in 1992 about how. Uh, there would be no software engineering in America because it's all going to be done more cheaply abroad. And it felt like, and this is in, so I'm, this is basically written when I'm in college studying computer science. I'm basically being told that I'm, I'm, uh, I'm going to be about to be obviated. Um, and it just did like, none of it rang true to me, but I couldn't, I, I didn't know why I was, I, I feel like this is, this doesn't make sense, but I'm too young to actually know why none of this makes sense. And it turns out it was all wrong. And he wrote a book uh, four years later called The Rise and Resurrection of the American Programmer. Like, actually just getting, I was totally wrong. But if you could actually buy both books, please. If I could sell you a book coming and going, that would be great. Uh, it, which does kind of, um, I think, go to the point of like, this is actually the, the, the purpose of this is to actually sell books, unfortunately. You know, you know but you, you were saying, I mean, not to, not to, uh, not to praise it too heavily, but like the principles are not all wrong, uh, and and uh, some of them at least feel obvious. Or you know, I, I did not. I, I certainly didn't read this in in two thousand one, but by the time I was aware of the Agile Manifesto, it sort of felt like a lot of the stuff was like, yeah, like understanding having engineers, having all the engineers, having people working on a task understand the point of the task and the person for whom they're building it is a valuable thing. That's good. Uh, yes. Simplicity. Right. Is, uh, well, yeah. I mean, Sorry, Dan. Good. But, but like at the same time, thou shalt not kill is also not wrong. Right. I mean, that's <laughs> right. a pretty good rule. It's good stuff. Yeah. Right. You know, I mean, it, like these guys hit on the kernel of truth and, and, and they kind of rip on it, but then where it goes <laughs> off the rail is they sell it as like, you know, Oh, this like do this. And this is the solution to your problems. And, you know, like, I hate to say this because it's going to sound horribly elitist, but who are they marketing these things to? You know? <laughs> Dan, I almost think it, it's like you're almost outraged that there is a kernel of truth because it's being like – the kernel of truth is being as, used as a toehold to actually sell you things that are quack cures. Well, but it always is. I mean, like, you know, I, I, I suspect that if you look at the rise of most major religions, 
This is people observing the world around them and being like, hey, if we rotate crops in that field, if I, if, you know, if I let that, that field light fallow after I plant corn in there for a couple of years, and then I plant corn again, like that's sustainable and we can kind of keep doing that more or less indefinitely. But if I just tell Fred, the, the farmer down the road, hey, do that. Hey, you should write unit tests, for example. Fred's going to be like, well, I'm not going to, you know, who are you, right? Like, but if, if I say, well, God told me to tell you, right, to not plant something in that field for a couple of years after you plant corn, then it's like, and oh, by the way, if you do it, fire and brimstone is going to rain down and your family is going to go all, all die. And it's like, whoa, okay, all right, I won't plant corn there for a couple of years, you know? And similarly, if you have these kind of self-styled master agile software craftspeople, men, whatever, people like Robert Martin kind of coming out and telling you, <laughs> well, if you're not writing tests for everything, then you're just wrong. And, and you know, this dude has 100,000 Twitter followers and has written five books on the subject. You're like, well, he knows what he's talking about. No, he doesn't. The guy doesn't actually write any working software. Show me some, and so show me a single important piece of code that that dude has written, right? Well, now contrast with like, sorry, no, I, I'm sorry, I don't, I, I don't want to take you off your roll there. Sorry, Dan, but yeah, it's um, you're drawing the fire and rim. So no, I, I mean, I, I think you're you're right. I, I think that the there is a certain sense of like fear is kind of being used. But the thing is like there is a kernel of truth here, right? I mean, I think that there's a, a lot of these, the principles in the manifesto are not wrong. Um, it's just... And, and I would say it's, it's, it's less facile than just you sh thou shalt not kill, right? Like, because I've been in lots of software engineering shops where like software engineers are like, don't understand like what the customer wants and, and are isolated from it. And yeah, it's bad, but it's, but they don't recognize it as it, as it's bad. Um, so, so, I mean, perhaps where you're going, Brian, like there's, there's truth in a bunch of these things and it, and a lot of the failure is um, the religion that comes up surrounding it. I mean, just go to the agile manifesto.org and it, and it, and it looks like everyone laying hands on, on, this, on, the, on the sacred text. It does look like uh, there, it looks like an orb photo of like you know like the, of, the, Trump, of, right. of Trump, except that it's in a it's in a oh. hotel room in, in in Snowbird or whatever. That's right. Um, but but then there's also a lack of specificity, which which gives one lots of like opportunity for faith healers to come in and say, you know, do it my way. And if you fail, it's because you have not agile enough. All right, so have you ever been in like a daily scrum, Adam? Yes. I mean, and so, yes, I have. I've been in ones that were, and in fact, at, at Fishworks, I think we did a daily scrum of a sort. Yes, but, but not calling it by, I mean, yes, like a daily communication, fine. But in terms of the, yes, the, because the thing that I found a bit maddening about, or so actually maybe surprising about Agile, is how rigid it became. With in particular, like the sprint cadence, like yes, it feels to me to be one of these. Um, and, and you know, if you read what they say, and I think it was even in this retrospective where they were saying, you know, the original intent of that was to allow engineers some time without the requirements changing. Um, which I think is kind of an interesting idea, but then all, it, everything gets shoehorned into what became this two-week cadence, which is 
I mean, it's kind of ridiculous. It's like there's so much stuff that that is shorter than that, and so much stuff that is much longer than that. Like, why would we? I I, I don't know. I found that was one of the things that always um, rubbed me the wrong way. Yeah, I think in particular for the kinds of software that that we have spent a lot of our careers working on, uh, a lot of it just doesn't fit in two weeks. Like, as as noble as it might be to get these incremental pieces working, there's lots of stuff that that just doesn't fit in two weeks. But I don't think two weeks was supposed to be a magic number. I mean, they were in a world where like new versions of software was coming out every five years and they wanted to be like, okay, we need something that's longer than an hour and less than five years. Yeah, no, I think it's a good point. And, and they were in a, that was, it was a world where you had this kind of this big release model. And I think being able to release software more frequently and to be able to judge software by the act of its creation, I think is good. I think that's all good. Um, so when, Aaron, when did, the, when did two weeks become sacrosanct? Because somewhere along the line it did. Oh, we said, oh, we, for the folks that I've interacted with that have done Agile, it, that, that doesn't seem to be a very fixed sprint cadence. Is that just me? I mean, is that not like... I, I, I think you're right. I mean, I think that all of these things sort of calcified. I mean, look, bear in mind the context in which this stuff arose, right? You know, like I, I remember sort of doing software development in the very late 90s and early 2000s when I was first sort of embarking on my professional career. And it was an era of a lot of really like micro tracking of all progress done by PM type people. You know, and these weren't like people fresh out of school. I mean, they were experienced manager types who had been in the industry for 20, 25 years. And I can remember having multiple meetings with a PM in one day where they were like adjusting something on a Gantt chart in Microsoft Project or whatever that, you know, software package was. And they were like, well, do you think you can do it like two hours earlier? And I'm just sitting there. I'm like, you know, I'm wasting a lot of time sitting in this meeting right now. Right. You know, totally distracted from my programming flow, like answering this question about whether I can adjust the schedule by five hours so that you can move a box around on a, on a chart that has absolutely no meaning, no connection to reality. You know, through, through, in that lens, like it, Agile felt so foreign to me coming from some microsystems where, you know, I started in the Solaris kernel group, working with, with Brian and, and, and other folks where... Our management was, I think, absent by and large, uh, and certainly product management was, I mean, not absent, but very ignorable, and they sort of Contained. That. Contained is the word we use for that, Adam. They were contained. contained like, in a different building, they'd show up and they'd you know, ask you how long a slider should be, and you'd give them an answer, and then, and then you know, send them on some other goose chase. But, but you, you could really ignore them. But in part, you know, people weren't paying attention to the products that we were working on. Um, they were off. So, what on other was the things. process by which you found out whether the customer was happy with the product? So, we, we actually had a pretty direct connection with our customers. I mean, I think that was actually right. one of the strengths of that organization is that we actually we dealt with our customers pretty directly. Um, and, yeah. uh, and 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 that's part of the reason why I think we actually developed a bunch of stuff that was pretty relevant to them over the course of a decade. It's because we had a pretty direct, direct connection. So I mean, like, right. think, that, sorry, that's why that that notion of of being in touch with the customer was just so innate. Yes, that's right, and really valued. Like the, 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 and I do think that, like, I guess Agile like hits on some of that. I am realizing I'm trying to actually 
uh, get some of the Agile nomenclature. Are, are meetings in Agile actually called ceremonies? I'm <laughs> Because I'm on a blog entry that is, or a, what, on that last thing that is for Agile ceremonies demystified. And I'm thinking like, okay, that's pretty funny. Like they're making like a snarky remark. I'm like, oh my God, these actually are called ceremonies. I, has anyone worked in an organization where they actually become like, you're invited to the ceremony at two o'clock. It's like, what? Well, uh... Only if you wear the robe. Is this like a bris? I mean, is this, are we, what's going to happen at the ceremony? Um... That's the only ceremony you can think of? All right, that's fine. Yeah, it's, 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 it's the first one that came to mind. What's wrong with it's, that? It's a good ceremony. It's a good yeah, ceremony. It's fine. What's wrong with that ceremony? Nothing. nothing. I just don't know. Oh, bris? Wedding? Funeral? How many ceremonies do we have? Graduation? I don't know. We've got, I mean, there are only like five ceremonies to pick from, really, right? Or do we. <laughs> no, that's right. Please don't fact check that. That's right. There are only five ceremonies outside of Agile, where there are many, That's many, many ceremonies. Oh, so Dan, you raise an interesting point about like this, like, hey, can you pull this in four hours earlier? Because I, I think it, we overly enshrine schedule estimation in software, where we are trying to estimate something that is fundamentally there are there are many 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 unknowns. I mean, there's there's software where you get to the point where there's there there are those unknowns fade away, and you've got a lot of knowns, and but in my experience, like when you hit a date from a schedule perspective, it's because you're using that date to focus effort and to determine in particular what you do and what you don't do. So it's like, okay, we are, we know we're not going to do this because we need to deliver this to this customer on this date, but it's very hard to fix the actual scope and the date unless you have a really known problem. If there are any unknowns to the problem, it becomes, I think, really, really, really hard, or at least it's been hard for me. I don't know if... Um, oh, I, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, look, I think that these, all of these methodologies, all of them, Waterfall, Agile, Scrum, I don't, I don't care. They work best for a certain class of problems, and they do not work at all for other classes of problems. And, you know, I, I think if you're trying to deliver like a payroll system or something like this, and, and by the way, this isn't a, you know, poo on the, on, the, on, the, on the people who are working on that stuff. That's necessary, important software. And, I, and I'm not suggesting that those people are lesser programmers or something like that. But the contours of that problem are a lot better understood than, say, implementing a, like a new and, and a Yeah, I mean, you're right. You're breaking up there at least, Dan, for at least a little bit for me. But I think that the, the, this point about repeatability is a really important point, that software to me, software, the, the reason that, that there are so many unknowns in software is because if you're doing it right, you are tautologically solving aspects of a new problem. Because if you're solving an existing problem, the cost of goods sold of software is zero, especially in an open source world. You should just be using that crate, you know, in, in Rust parlance. You should be using that the software that does what you need it to do. Tom, I see you unmuting yourself. Yeah, I, I want to touch on what you were talking about, but I think there's a Heisenberg principle at work with software in that you can tell what's in a release or you can tell when it ships, but not both. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're yeah, right. And it, it's, it's really, really, really true in my experience. And yeah, I, I, don't, I don't want to throw you know, too much rain on your parade, Brian, but um, <laughs> I, I'm a huge fan of of Agile and have seen it work really effectively uh, on all sorts of projects from like 
front end to back end, small to large. Uh, the first project where I saw it meaningfully, you know, meaningful size project where I saw it implemented and, and done well was um, starting 2004 with the building of S3 at uh, AWS. Um, and, uh, you know, the, I think it's easy to throw, um, you know, to hurl abuse at it from a distance. Um, if you've been burned once in a, an organization that, you know, sort of did a half-assed implementation or pursued some of these more kind of uh, uh, religious event type approaches to how the process is done and how meetings are run and so on. But you can take a really just pragmatic approach to uh, building software and uh, using the, not, not just the principles on the site, but, but using some processes that have evolved over the last almost 20 years uh, around Scrum and really get some nice velocity improvements. All right, so Tom, I've got that's this is actually in many ways a much more interesting conversation because I think so many people have had agile backfire um, that it it's easy to to as you say hurl abuse at it. But so knowing examples of where Scrum really worked, or where agile really worked, what were some of the things about it that were effective, or I mean, what are some of the aspects of it that were so okay, effective? So here, yeah, so here are a few you give developers a quiet space for the duration of a sprint and they have an uninterruptible window of time when they can do, when they get to do nothing other than work on the tasks that were pulled into that sprint. That's just awesome. And and I wouldn't get married to like two weeks. I've seen it work, you know, most, most um, teams that I've had have used three week sprints, but two weeks works for some, one week works for some. Um, that that's sort of you know somewhat immaterial, uh, but that quiet space where product managers can't interrupt you uh, is really golden. Was uh, it at all tied to your release cadence that at the end of each sprint we're going to push a new version of this particular service? Well, that's the most central part of it. Is that it's about the art of the possible, and you pull into the the sprint the things that you're pretty confident you can commit to actually being able to demo in a shippable form three weeks hence or two weeks hence. Uh, the most central uh, process aspect of that to me then is the sprint demo where you demonstrate success or failure against those things that you committed to in your uh, sprint planning process a couple of weeks ago and, you know, show them, you know, either, you know, in, in a, a test environment or actually live if you've deployed it um and and tick off each of the things that you committed to to doing and in return got that kind of golden quiet window of time on which to work on them so, so that's interesting tom because i mean what you're saying is that the that the, the real value was the focus that it afforded engineers i mean this is actually what the original agile manifesto i, mean, I think it came from is trying to, to afford folks that kind of focus it's it's that's half of us. So it's it's a you know it's a two way contract. Um, I give you focus. Uh, I I say I as product owner give you focus, and in return you'll demonstrate which pieces of the things you committed to um, you actually achieved in that focused window of time. And it's never a hundred percent, but it might be seventy percent or eighty percent of the tasks you took in. And you know we look at them together and commit that yes that you know this. These all check the boxes. 
you've a green light to ship them and you move on to the next planning process. It, it really, um, and, you know, I've seen so many teams, S3 again, you know, classic example where the requirements were really, really iffy kind of getting into starting to work on that and they changed like month by month. Uh, so it would have been super frustrating if the team didn't have the protection of at least these sort of sets of uh, windows of time uh, where they could just work through um, a, a, a fixed set of commitments and in the interval between sprints then, you know, let, let their PO sort of push or pull in whatever direction they felt they needed to. And then what was the interval between sprints? I mean, how did, what was the kind of the, um, the alternation between sprints and sprint planning? Uh, sorry, what was the... Because what I found is often sprints end up being back-to-back and they're, they, the kind of sprint planning ends up being a bit of an afterthought or... The, the or, or we in our sprint planning we just do the things that we're going to do anyway. I I I it's like I'm curious about how the kind of the sprint planning piece worked for yeah, something my, as large as S three. Yeah, so, so certainly, uh, yeah, it'd be good to have Alan Atlas on here. Maybe we should get him on at one point because he was the scrum master of that uh, program and he he teaches scrum, so he is also a hmm. huge fan of it. But he um. He trained a lot of people across Amazon then, to, you know, on the back of the success of that to be scrum masters and uh, as a process, it was adopted right across the, con- the company. Uh, a common approach one that I, I've liked is uh, to have 14-day sprints, have the 15th day for, uh, you know, start out your, your sprint demo. Um, the, the engineering team de- with the scrum master does a retrospective to assess their process and look at, you know, what worked well in that sprint and what could be better in terms of process improvements. And then you go into like typically like like half a day of uh, planning for the next one. Uh, And then you start on, you know, and on, on the next, you know, three week cycle. And then how about for things that didn't fit into that, cycle where you've got someone on the team who is engaged in a project that's going to be paying down some technical debt. It's going to be taking, you know, it's going to take eight weeks. It's yeah. not going to take three. How, how do you kind of fit those folks into that? Because that's, this is where well, I found that Agile really well, struggles. Yeah. Well, first of all, um, you know, paying down technical debt should always be part of the process in terms of how every team works. And so um, it's easy in, you know, it's all too easy to starve that out. And some, personally, my preferred approach that has worked well is to maintain two two backlogs. Uh, one that is a featureful, customer-facing um, set of um, takeable tasks, and and the other is a prioritized list of technical debt and current feeding and scaling and operations-related uh, things that you know the engineering team agrees are in the right sequence and the product owner might not be involved at all in the prioritization of that one. They just know that, you know, that the team feels like what's at number one on that is the most important thing to take next. And um, typically um, I, I've shot for a 70-30 split in terms of story points that go towards 
features versus story points that go towards technical debt. If you hit, you know, if, if you get into, you know, a crisis of performance or something like that, it might ramp all the way up from 30 to, you know, 100 if you need to go and do a whole, an entire sprint that's paying down debt. And sometimes if you're like trying to meet an ex external objective, 30 goes lower. But over the longer arc of time, that I've, I've seen that work well as a balance between the two. So you're going like full in story points, epics. I mean, you're, the, 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 it sounds totally. like you, yeah. the, the whole nine yards. And, and then how do you kind of um, assure, and I get maybe because this is where, what the, the kind of the scrum master's job is when it is working, is to assure that the team has that focus for that period of time. Because I think it just becomes very tempting, you know, a crisis arises and, you yeah. know, we need to, you know, okay, we, we need to go, we've got yeah. our customers. It, it, it just, it, it feels like there's, there's what we said, you know, a week and a half ago, we actually now need to change our direction. And, yeah. you know, how do you, and maybe that just didn't come up that frequently, or maybe the team was really protected. Yeah, uh, I've, um, across hundreds of sprints, I've never had to abort so, um, and if, you know, like I said, my um, most common duration would have been three weeks. So, you know, on average, then you'd be a week and a half in and something would have changed. Maybe it was one time, but something changes so radically that everything you've got in terms of tasks you've taken into the sprint is now irrelevant. That's just, um, that, that's, uh, that's an extreme circumstance that is really rare given it's only a week and a half ago that you planned what tasks you were going to take in and they were the top priority ones, you know? Um, so. Hey, so Tom, yeah. I'm sure you've seen like lots of failed agile implementations or folks talking about those. Yeah. What, what do you think distinguished the success that you had against, you know, what I've seen, what, you know, what, what seems to me as a, a pile of like, I, I've seen mostly failures, not again, not personally, but as I've touched to get brushed against these organizations. Yeah. So what do you think made this so successful? So um, the, I, I, I've um, spent a lot of time with a lot of different teams that were doing agile badly or doing something that they called agile, or, uh, but, but really wasn't the most common thing that I I've seen uh, take teams astray is they don't do demos at all. And so um accountability breaks down and the contract that I talked about earlier um, and the, you know, the trust that you get between the product leader or the product owner and in some, in some companies, the product organization and the engineering team fails when you uh, don't do demos. Uh, and I think that's a real loss, not just because of like the um, demise of sort of this contract and, and what it represents in terms of being able to hit velocity, but also, if you construct it well, um, demos can be a real celebration of the work achieved, but also they get, I, I've seen it, um, them help engineers to raise their game when I bring in, you know, I, I bring EAs and paralegals and other people just say, hey, you know, can you sit on this team's demo? And they actually love it because they're in, they're in a software engineering organization, but they're, they feel in the rest of their jobs that they're somewhat tangential to the nuts and bolts of what the company's delivering and they're real happy to come in and be part of the audience of a demo. Uh, so that's the most common thing that, that I see 
like not happening. Um, the um, the second most common thing, common thing, frankly, is that uh, retrospectives don't happen, and so um, there's no sharpening of the saw and iterating on the process and celebrating the things that work well with respect to you know process improvements over time, uh, but more importantly, not a lack of attention to the parts that don't work. Um, I'd say the third thing is uh, obsession over estimation and and being good at it. And uh, I I think that you know at, at the extreme margins, maybe like doing agile and estimating your work every three weeks for years at a time, you event, people eventually get a little bit better at estimation, but not by very much. So you know um, people will get wrong, and sometimes a sprint will blow up because something you took on as a three-pointer turned out to be a 13-pointer and uh, you completely ran out of capacity, but, and that's okay. You, you know, you have to shrug that off and, and carry on trying to assess what is it about it that, uh, was, um, that was missed with respect to um, how you uh, set, you know, when you set out and you're planning and embarked on that sprint but it shouldn't cause you to lose faith in the whole process. Yes, I find that when um, part of the reason that software is so difficult to estimate is because it's, it's so hard to know the, you know, it, we thought, you know, this part operated in this way, as it turns out, like it's actually misdocumented or it actually has got defects that, or we didn't understand how it was used or, or what happened. I mean, it feels like there's so my, it, it, there, there's so many layers to software. It's very easy to end up with a problem that you thought was simple being actually much more complicated than you thought it was through no, not because of a lack of foresight, um, but just because of the, of just the amount of the amount that's unknowable in so many different kinds of software systems before you actually get in to actually implement them. Totally. Um, and so, you know, the, one of the key things, Brian is, you know, being honesty, being honest with the fact that that's the case and being open to, you know, very big misses happening from time to time. But one helpful tool that a lot of teams uh, have used effectively is that I've seen is um, you, you know, over time you agree on a certain task and um, though that everyone will understand the, the, the contours of and say, you know, for this team, this was a three-pointer. This is what a three-pointer looks like. And this other thing was a five-pointer. And you keep those as golden tasks. So that, and, and the next time, you know, maybe in six months' time, the, the team will be different in terms of its velocity. So you, you come along with something that looks a lot like that five-pointer that you took, you know, six months ago. And you say, okay, th this is really like that. This should be a five-pointer as well. And you, and you find out that it turns out to be an eight this time around because... Um, you know, the, the profile as the, of the team has changed a little bit um, or there are, there, you know, th there was some misunderstanding in terms of what it takes to get that done now and, and how it's different from six months ago. But um, I think, yeah, I, th I think yeah. one of the additionally, one of the reasons that it's so hard to estimate these things is that the industry is still very young. You know, we've been writing software now for what, like 60 years somewhere around there, and, or I get 70. And, you know, compared to human beings building bridges, where we've been doing that for thousands of years. And 
the body of knowledge around how to do that and how to successfully build a software project, it just isn't there. And, and you know, I, I, I go back again to this context thing and sort of the rise of agile. And I think it's very important to contextualize these things in the sense that, you know, in the 90s, nobody, I mean, I mean like, we're still not good at this, but nobody knew how to do it back then. And that was why you would have, you know, the project manager pulling you in three times and being like, can you shave five hours off of this thing? And we're going to track this stuff meticulously. And I mean, does anybody remember things like the personal software process and the team software process and the software engineering institute and the stuff that those guys were putting out? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, it, well, it, it, we we all we learned that we were all sinners because we weren't working on the space server software. There, there was only one SEI level five organization in the world, and you don't work for it. Yeah, exactly. But you know, like I, I like a lot of those processes were oriented around very fine grained tra- tracking of your time, and it was like you know, write down everything you do all day. You know, and, and I remember doing, I, I tried to do this and I ended up stopping because I was so embarrassed because I was like, well, you know, 1999, half of my time spent, you know, per day is spent reading Usenet. And, you know, like maybe a couple hours a day are actually like, you know, applying fingers to keyboard and text editor. And, you know, it's like, gee, am I a terrible like software developer as a result of that? Well, the answer is kind of no, because I was learning a lot by reading Usenet at the time. And I could take those things and I could apply them to my work. And then, you know, that four hours might save me two weeks or some crazy thing like that, you know? And so when I look at things like Agile and indeed all of these processes and methodologies, it's all about trying to be like, hey, there's this completely unruly discipline that nobody knows how to do properly. Let's try to figure out a way to bring some structure and order to this thing, because right now it's just chaos. And chaos is not good from a business perspective. Well, but I, I also think, think the, it may- the, the key point here, though, is that, um, you know, this is a young discipline. Uh, people will continue to be poor at estimating um, the effort to achieve a certain task for some considerable time to come. But one of the great things about Agile is you get people working on the most important tasks at the top of the product backlog. And the the way in which I've seen projects go off track the, in the worst way is you have teams of people working on the wrong thing. But Tom, doesn't that reflect just the disconnect with the, the customer and the customer's needs? Like, isn't, isn't that, I mean, understood that that's part of the Agile Manifesto, but um, I mean, t- is it that lacking Adam. of that true north? It, it is, it is, <laughs> but like a lot of these, um, a lot of the meetings that we're talking about here um, and this conversation has been mostly scrum focused, um, Organizing most of these meetings is about facilitating communication between the people who are developing software and the people who are having conversations with customers and making sure that everybody has the, the full context of, of what's happening. And um, some people really benefit from the level of rigidity that is set, up, set out by um, uh, these individuals who are proposing very specific rigid processes, at least at first, because... But prior to that, they were just not having these conversations. They weren't talking. Uh, you know, the engineers were not talking to the product owner or to the support engineers or to the, the salespeople or to anyone to be able to really understand the full context of the thing that they're doing. So these meetings are, are mostly about facilitating that communication. And, and I, I find that for high-performing teams that, or teams that 
you know, become high performing, they'll often, you know, start off with one of these more rigid processes, likely have some number of retrospectives in which they pare down the number of meetings they have to the things that are truly delivering them some value in communication um, to the point where they get a good balance between, you know, having those those communications to gain context as well as having the, the space and time to be able to really have uninterrupted blocks in which they can focus on producing software. Um, also, to your point, Dan, um, in the US at least, we're p- pretty bad at estimating how long it takes to build a bridge and how much it costs to build it. So I'm not sure if we're, you know, bridge building and, and subway building are particularly uh, gold standards in terms of estimation either. All right, well, fair enough. Fair enough. Well, absolutely, Ian. And to, to your point, I mean, I, I think that the when you if you take construction and let's not talk about a bridge, but maybe like a parking lot or something that where there are um, th- th- there are often uh, you, we've done this before. Um, I'm going to put a foundation in for a house. I've I have done many of these foundations. This foundation is no different than the than the other foundations I've done. I've got very good estimates for how long this is going to take me. I know exactly how long it's going to take me because it's, it's, there's a repeatability there. And I mean, I think, and probably like any software engineer, if I were to go rewrite the software that I have written over and over and over and over and over again, I would get really, really good at estimating how long it would take me to go do it because I've done it many times before. We don't do that in software. We don't rewrite our software. And we are, in fact, what we are doing is often entirely not repeatable it's new and whenever a construction project looks like that ian to your point it has all the problems that software has so we are in in the bay area here where we for somewhat strange reasons um decided to build a a self-anchored suspension bridge um in the east bay span of the bay bridge only the second self-anchored suspension bridge ever made this is this allows you to not have these, because these concrete anchorages, I guess, are very upsetting to a bridge engineer. I don't, it's it's not really clear to me. I mean, I know that we software engineers do this all the time, so I shouldn't be, I shouldn't besmirch a civil engineer that's doing this. But in a self-anchored suspension bridge, as my my neighbor was a civil engineer, or cynical civil engineer says, um, you, you get one bridge for the price of two because you have to build a bridge, build the bridge on top of that bridge wrap the actual cable around the bridge and then and then uh, then destroy effectively the, the, this first bridge that you built and the thing will anchor itself and that bridge went went like six seven x over budget in every conceivable dimension had all sorts of problems that no bridge had ever seen before um, because they were looking a lot more like a software project in the way they were doing it and it was a it was a new and there were many aspects about that project that didn't have analogs in in previous projects. I I don't feel that like this is, you know, Dan, you're saying this is because software is new. I think it's deeper than that. I think that software is this very beautiful but paradoxical confluence of information and machine. And it looks like both and neither at the same time. So it's when we develop software, developing software to me is more like, it is as much writing a novel as it is building a bridge. In fact, it's kind of the confluence of the two of them. And it's, it can be, as a result, really, really hard 
to to have forward visibility, especially into the software that is the most innovative software. I mean, if you look at the, the, the software that has been the most important and you look at the history of its development, it's, but that's why I actually Tom, I'm really interested now in the history of S3 because S3 would be a, a real counterexample to that where you've got a really piece of, of very innovative software, very important software developed with a methodology that's often not associated with that kind of software. Can someone write a book on that, Tom? I would just be... So yeah, I think so. that the repeatability aspect of that is sort of part of the context that Dan was asking for earlier. There's a, some talk about whether or not the authors or the signatories of the manifesto were writing code or not, but I think it's actually more important where they worked. And it's not the type of projects that they worked on, but it was that customer relationship. You know, I don't disagree with anything Tom said, but what he explained was mostly about how it became a management methodology, but it started as a more of a customer relationship tool. So when you showed up to that demo and you showed the working software that values so much, you were showing that to the customer. This is these were like consultancies. They were building the fifteenth website that year, and all the websites were mostly the same. So there really was a repeatability aspect to it. But you were sort of saying, "Okay, Dan's right. We don't really know how to make this, but we're going to try our darndest for two, three, four, however many weeks, and we're going to come back to you and prove that we did something and give you a chance to walk away." So I think that, you know, going back a little bit further in the conversation to that, to the discussion of Sun and Sun's uh, engineering relationship with the customers, you had uh, higher sticker prices, which meant probably fewer uh, customers per engineer. And, you know, if a product manager comes in and wants to reprioritize something, why? The customer's not going to walk away. They were using Solaris. They were bought into Solaris for the next decade. And you know, whatever sort of hiccup had occurred in the two weeks that you may have called a sprint, it wasn't going to change the relationship with that customer. So it wasn't worth doing. I, I think that's, you know, th there's a, a gap that we've sort of been alighting over where it jumped from manifesto principles that were adopted by teams to this like management methodology that is quote unquote implemented across an organization. Yeah. It's really, that, 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 sorry, go ahead, Dan. Since we're also sort of looking at the unicorn's success here, you know, and, and I would claim that for sort of every successful deployment of agile methodologies in AWS, you know, there's a significantly larger number of failed applications of the methodology across a whole bunch of other organizations. And, you know, we've, we've talked a lot about Scrum specifically, but at the time that the, that the Agile Manifesto was written, I, I don't know that the signatories were thinking about like, yes, Scrum is the thing that it should be. I mean, you know, there were other things that were sort of in play at the time, like extreme programming. People still thought that was a good idea. And, you know, it's like, well, we have to prepare. Well, everybody. the manifesto itself was a compromise between all of those people. Like the, the inventor of Scrum, the inventor of Scrum programming were signatories. And the manifesto was sort of the, okay, what are the things we can all agree on? Because I'm sick of fighting with all you guys. Let's uh, turn our attention outward and spread our gospels. Where we can well, so we, you get to a kind of a good point, though. But in terms of like, I, I'm, you know, I'm you know sick of disagreeing with these other people. It's like, well, maybe you guys, maybe you're focused on slightly different problems. I mean, the, the one thing that I and I think that this is, a, you know, a, a persistent point of frustration with Agile, is this kind of trying to apply it to every kind of problem. And I think it applies really well to some kinds of problems and not really well to others. I think it's. It, it's there's a real danger. I mean, we used to call this a silver bullet, right? That there's a, there, there's no single silver bullet, and it, I, I think that, that there's a danger of deluding ourselves into thinking that there is a silver bullet. 
And I think things I like about the manifesto is that it is actually more directional and less prescriptive. Um, and I think that the, you know, Tom, I find it really interesting that, that you say that the thing that was most valuable or, or, or rather a common failure mode of people for, for whom are, that they're not applying it properly is this kind of lack of a demo. And, you know, the, the idea of like, you know, working software is the primary measure of progress is, is highlighted in the manifesto. And yet you go to a lot of these like, you know, agile coaching kind of pages and they don't really talk about the, the demonstration as much. They talk about, you know, chunking up the work, but not emphasizing the demo. I think it's kind of, because certainly we have found, I mean, just to speak from an oxide perspective, like demos are great. They're, they're energizing. They bring teams together. They give something, something very concrete to focus on. They can also be though very small. And so Tom, one question I've got for you on the demos you know, I, you know, I, I, and again, you know, at Oxide, we've got a, a particular sets of problems we're, we're solving, but, you know, someone will demonstrate, you know, something booting, which to most people would just be like, is that even like a problem? And of course, for us, that's amazing. You know, if you've got a guy, you know, a guest booting with a particular device being attached or what have you, um, even though it's not very impressive as a demo. And Tom, I got to imagine that a lot of those S3 demos along the way were only impressive to those who were immersed in the problem being solved. Of course, yeah. And, you know, um, yeah, seeing something boot, if it was previously unable to boot, is remarkable. Sometimes a, a demo is yeah, showing a, a, a graph that, that shows a shift in performance of something that you can't, that isn't directly tangible for the participants who are observing the demo, but the graph carries the message. Uh, it, yeah, yeah, it, uh, it, it always won't be, you know, the most entertaining thing, but um, again, it's the closing of the contract and uh, there's the sort of circular dimension to which the demo shapes uh, how you qualify the things that get it taken into the sprint, because sometimes, you know, you see a task and you, you feel like, okay, that, that, that sounds like the most important thing to do and, and I get it. But you start to think about, wait a minute, how would I demo that in, in three weeks? What, what would a demo um, and a declaration of success against that really look like? And um, there are times when you'll sort of step back from it and say, hey, wait, you know, this really isn't takeable uh, because it's actually, there, there are many different pieces of it or uh, it's too ambiguous to actually be able to demo something and declare that you um, successfully executed against um, how that task is described. So it needs more work. And, and Tom, did you find teams inside of AWS that were taking aspects? Because certainly I look at, you know, the, the when software development has gone well or been successful, there are certainly like pieces of Agile that are often present in terms of like things like you know, being demo heavy and and focusing on working software and and being able to to iterate quickly and so on, but without some of the other rigidity. Or did you find that it was kind of like, no, listen, if you want to take a fraction of this, you need to take like you got to take story points and the the, the whole works. Uh, you know, you take the stuff that's of value to you, and um, you know call them story points or tokens or whatever, but there's, there's some way of, you know, use Fibonacci numbers, use something different. There's some way of expressing granularity with respect to task size and declaring that uh, the relative granularity of these lays out 
in this way in terms of you know how many of that sort of task it takes to uh, would would add up to this one um, the, um, you know bottom line though being prescriptive does you no good uh, but being attentive to what within the methodology works for you and um, doubling down on that I think is the path to success and by the way you know um, Agile isn't just used in AWS, it's used throughout Amazon by, you know, at probably at this stage, many, many thousands of teams. And it, uh, I would argue yeah, sorry, Aaron, that the core idea behind Agile is you don't know the requirements at the beginning. You have to build things and iterate it and demo it to people and find out new things you didn't know about the requirements. The exact same thing is true for your Agile development process. If you say, oh, I got this book and we're going to follow this book's procedures exactly, you've just waterfalled your business by saying we're right. going to follow yeah. Agile perfectly. Like, no, you see what works for your team and the things that work for your team, you keep doing and evolve on that. And the things that work badly, you abandon and don't do those things. I mean, so to use the watchmaker analogy, if you come across a watch and it works, it's not because someone sat down, thought about real hard, had to design it, and it's like, aha, I have this perfectly intelligent design for a watch, now I'm going to build it. No, they made thousands of different iterations and found out what worked and kept the things and made it more complicated and showed it to people who are like, you know what, I need a minute hand. And they're like, okay, let me go back and add that. <laughs> New invention for 2022, the portable sundial. <laughs> but is, isn't, that, isn't that, though, in direct opposition to what some of the agile like manifesto signatories will say on, on forums like Twitter. And again, I go back to the people like Ron Jeffries and Robert C. Martin and so forth, who, you know, Martin specifically will tell you, if you're not unit testing everything, then you're wrong. And you don't need static piping, for example, because I just write all these unit tests. I don't have errors in my code because I am a disciplined clean coder. Like I just... I mean, it, it sounds to me, and I, this, this becomes the one true Scotsman thing at some point, but people are describing aspects of agile methodology that do in fact work. And this goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the hour, where, yeah, there's kernels of truth in all of these things, you know? But when we talk about agile programming, like, what does that mean, you know? And some, like, philosophical... I think that chameleon nature is actually the key to its success and why we all pretty much hate it. It's that, you know, uh, 90s, we don't know how to make software. It's software is mainly used to sell servers or to run some particular type of business. And uh, I forgot the author of the book Brian mentioned about, you know, the demise of the programmers coming in. Uh, And, you know, I actually think that that book is right, but early. You know, eventually there is some point where, uh, we're going to create most of the software that is uh, opportunity cost-based, and it, we're going to go back to that type of software that is just uh, incrementally used to improve a business like it was in the 80s and the early 90s. The thing that caused that book to be wrong, in my opinion, is things like Agile, which allowed the uh, industry to scale up management precisely through letting people pretend to agree while actually disagreeing, going off and doing their own thing and creating some software. And in the end, you know, it would be revealed that nobody was really talking about the same thing anyway, but everybody was left with working software to sell. And so, you know, money makes a lot of problems go away. So at some point, we're going to hit some new barrier. You know, miniaturization of technology was a key to letting Agile thrive. 
But we need like another management methodology and another miniaturization wave or something like that in order to push that book's uh, predictions off another 20, 30, 40 years. But eventually, I think we can all tell that we're going to get to that point. It's just what what is the you know social mechanism that we're all going to use to to keep pushing that off until we retire. Yeah, I you know I don't I don't know if I've got the stamina to go back and reread that book. It's a book that I threw out as a in enraged as as a younger software engineer. So I'm not sure I could actually go back and reread it. Maybe I should. Jordan, it should be said, um, had a long history of getting things very very wrong. Um, so uh, Jordan became somewhat infamous for uh, forecasting that Y2K would be an would be an apocalypse. Um, moved off the grid in New Mexico, I believe, into a bunker where he continued to hold court and explain to any media that would come calling how uh, software had effectively destroyed the civilization or would destroy civilization Y2K. And there's a, actually a great, I'd love to be able to find it. There's a great, uh, what was then the McNeil Air News Hour interview with Jordan, um, where he claimed that New York City would um, not have water on the morning of January 1st, 2000. And um, good on the McNeil Air News Hour. They actually went in and interviewed the folks that developed the, that were responsible for the New York City, the, the Department of Public Works. And they were like, we did not understand why you wanted to uh, interview us with respect to the story. They're like, well, you know, there are some folks in software engineering who believe that the water system will not operate on January 1st, 2000. So do they understand the way it works? Like, well, so so the water is in the Adirondacks, which is at a much higher elevation than New York City and just works by gravity, actually. And it's like, well, aren't there micro-controlled valves? It's like, no, let me show you what one of these valves look like. Of course, they're gigantic, right? So, and of course, New York City had water and there there were no water issues in Y2K. But so Jordan got things things often wrong. I mean, he was as, um, he was... uh, Always no, no. Ne- we misinterpreted the sacred text. It's actually twenty thirty eight. That's right. It's twenty thirty eight. And then twenty thirty eight actually is. The, the, will be interesting to see what happens. I do feel that, like in Tom, I guess I one question I definitely have got for you is, it, it is unquestionable that some of this miasma around agile, you know, the, the and even this blog entry that we're talking about refers to a Dave Thomas piece where Dave Thomas gets very frustrated with agile and says that, you know, once the manifesto became popular, the word agile became a magnet for anyone with points to espouse, hours to bill or products to sell and became a marketing term, which I think is what a lot of us are reacting to. I mean, do you feel that it's, it, it, it must feel to you that it's, it's, hey, this is somewhat unfortunate that this, that this term is being sullied by the hucksters when there's, when this process as described has had so much value for you in your personal history. Uh, yeah, it, it, a little bit, Brian, but I, I don't pay a lot of attention to that. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I've just seen so many uh, positive proof points of, how it has worked for teams. And each time I've um, I've been in an organization where they said, you know, that, that just hasn't worked for us. You, you start to, you know, as I've asked, well, like, tell me about your implementation and so on. And um, they, you know, you, you come across people who are following a blog post or following a book, but not really. And, um, I mean, Tom, you know what this means. I mean, you, you, you have yeah. to write your own book, obviously. I mean, you've got to be... Uh, you, you... I, I, maybe there are too many already, and that's that's the root cause. 
I think that there's some truth to that, um, where it's it just feels uh, it, it it feels like it, you need to be one needs to be less prescriptive when talking about software. That it, it's it's very hard to be as prescriptive as a lot of these folks are, um, because there's just too many opportunities for it to for it to go wrong. But um, I do think it, I, I would be be curious to learn more about the development of S3 in particular, because I think it was happening at I mean. It is effectively, the, as far as I'm concerned, the first publicly available web service, really. I mean, I'm sure there are counterexamples to that, but it's definitely very early. And yeah, they, it, the, to me, Brian, the, um, I, I did an article for uh, ACMQ. Uh, oh! It's in, it's in uh, CSCM. Uh, yes. yes, 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 yes. Yeah, conversation right. with Werner. That, but, but it really gets to not just sort of the... the um, you know, the early days of how it was built out and so on. But my starting point was uh, at launch, uh, it was composed of eight services. And um, last November, actually, I guess it was um, a year and a half ago at reInvent, Werner casually threw out that it was made up of like 262 services. And uh, I, I felt like there was a fascinating nugget in there in terms of how something can scale and have like the fundamentally same characteristics over time over a period of 14 years and evolve from eight services to 262 and from a single agile team to a very large number of teams now and uh and both what what was it about how it was initially designed and constructed and how the uh the teams worked that uh, facilitated that evolution because that's evolution on a scale that we don't often see. Um, and also, you know, what were some of the uh, unanticipated surprises that popped up along the way? So, yeah, it's actually, I, I went and we'll obviously link to it in the show notes this interview with, between um, uh, you and Werner. Um, the, so it sounds like in terms of the actual development, you do mention in that interview that it was an agile team in the canonical sense. Um, the um, it, it would be interesting to know, was that the first agile team inside of AWS or had it been adopted earlier? It, it, it was the first. And interesting. Um, the, the, guy, the guy who was leading that team and scrum mastered uh, that process for how many, whoever number of sprints it took, uh, was a real, yeah, a very pragmatic um, advocate of Agile, and his next role um, after launch was uh, to do to be a Scrum Master trainer throughout the company, uh, which he did really effectively for a few years. Yeah, that's uh, that's it. Well, like I said, you should uh, you should write a book. It would be be interesting to to actually. Um, read that history and certainly that, that the interview is great. I know I read it when it came out, but it, it merits a, a reread for sure. Um, so if the idea is yeah. that Agile has proven to be something that's very powerful, but easy to get the implementation wrong, is Correct. there something that is to Agile what Rust is to C? <laughs> Way to bring it back. Exactly. To me, so far, it feels like Agile is more like a guideline rather than a target to hit. Every team I've been on has treated it as such. I can't say that 
anyone strictly fallen agile as a methodology or scrum strictly as a methodology and going back to like measuring effort or time i'd say if you do it over the long term estimates are garbage but the one thing that you do find is that if you have the same team for an extended period of time and people are doing some sort of measurement it does get consistent so if you do track those over time things can be consistent in terms of points or or time um but once your team changes that can go under the bus really fast yeah, that's been my experience i was struck when Tom said that the Scrum Master stuck around the S3 team for the duration of the project. I've worked on about a dozen different uh, Scrum teams, and I think only one that I can remember did the entire team stayed around for an entire project. And I'm talking like four months. So I, I think, you know, the Agile is sort of successful in organizations and teams that have trust or can build trust. And it's unsuccessful when you don't have trust or can't build trust. And I think you know, in the absence of trust, one of the ways to build trust is reliability, and that's where all the ceremonies come in. But I, to um, was it Aaron's question about what is better? I think uh, you can look at, you know, just about any methodology that provides a set of uh, points that people can rely on in lieu of that trust as a on ramp to trust. But really, if you talk about successful agile teams, they're almost always high trust teams. So you are getting to uh, what is. I think my favorite line from Tracy Getter's Assault of a New Machine, where Tom West deliberately decides that he's going to manage via trust. And the line that I love is he says that trust is risk, um, but that he found that the, because I, def- I absolutely agree with that, that I think that the, the, the best work that we do on teams are when we trust one another, when the team trusts one another. And when I think that's when people, feel they can do their, their best work. And how do you, I, I mean, I think you, you want to have that trust. And then I have also found the other bit that I found that is extremely useful is having that, those demos, the fixed cadence, I haven't quite gotten to, but I think that the, or not on that, uh, that tight cadence of that kind of two to three weeks. Um, but having a, a, a real demonstrations, I think are really important for all of the reasons that, that you talked about, Tom. Um, in terms of serving as a as a team catalyst and everything else, um, but I, I but there's still a lot of ambiguity in there, um, and that's not prescriptive at all. But those are just the things that I've observed that are um, tend to be true across high performing teams. So I think we, we've we've hit the hour here. Um, I, Adam, any uh, closing thoughts? You know, the, this, I thought this was a great discussion. And Tom, in particular, thanks for joining. Um, in, the, in this blog post, I thought one of the most interesting questions it raised in this 20-year retrospective of Agile was, what do we want to do differently next time? And uh, in this discussion, the thing that's been coming up is when Agile has failed, the answer can't just be, you're doing it wrong, you're, doing it wrong. you're not doing it enough, you're not believing in the religion sufficiently. So I think baking in the, to the next set of principles, that evaluation, how do you, how do you know, everyone has said, you do what's right for your team, but how do you execute that evaluation? How do you know if it's working for your team? Uh, and I think that that's, that's what I'd want to see either in the extension of Agile or whatever comes next. Yeah, looking for that, whatever, that rust to, to Agile. That's going to be... Uh... That's right. 
that's a book I'll buy for sure. All right. On that note, um, thanks everyone, and we will uh, we'll see you next week. We're, we're sorry for the the hiatus, but we're we're, um, we're kind of out for the last couple of weeks. But um, hopefully, we'll get back on a more regular cadence. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. Take care.